If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 12 to 19 has been the passage we've used the last two Sundays as sort of our text, sort of a jumping off point. And I think it's central to what we've been looking at, and that's the doctrine of original sin. Follow along, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. We've been studying the doctrine of original sin, which is a cornerstone of Christian belief, but it's one I think has been neglected by the church or simply set aside. Not only in its teachings but also in its presentation and in its strategy of how to share the gospel. What is the doctrine of original sin? Well, simply put, it is the belief that we are all born into the world as sinners. Last Sunday I spoke on why preach on original sin. And I want to mention two of the four reasons I gave here at the beginning of the sermon by way of review. But the second two I will mention later on toward the end of the sermon. The first reason, and this is what got me started on this, is a misdirected focus. Um, finding ourselves living when and where we do, and we, in some ways our heads are spinning. How did we go from being what we perceive to be a Christian society to a post-Christian world? How did this happen? How did we get here? And many people would point the finger and put the blame on the atheists of the 19th century. Marx, Darwin, Nietzsche, and Freud. But as we've seen, at least I hope we have, that the beginning of rationalism wasn't a denial of the existence of God. I think that's where we get off track. We think that's where it started. But it was rather the denial of original sin. It was a rejection of that idea. And this is key. This is really important. I think if we don't understand this, you know, that people, in fact, can say they believe in God and not believe in original sin. Um, and if they do so, they've really missed the boat. The second reason to speak or to look at original sin is the weakening of the foundations. And I mentioned last week that as I've gone through books trying to find material to, to preach on original sin, I'm not finding very much at all. And what was striking to me was in the books that I thought would deal with it, um, it's not even mentioned at all. Instead, the language that is used, as I mentioned last week, is that of brokenness. And the brokenness is seen usually as a result of one's choices, 
or choices outside the individual's control. And what is not stated explicitly is that the corruption is from outside the individual. So the idea that we are born into this world as sinners really seems to almost be a foreign concept in the church today. In some ways, this is a reflection of the last four centuries since the beginning of the Enlightenment. Um, As one philosopher put it, the concept of original sin is the common opponent against which all the different trends of the philosophy of the Enlightenment join forces. No matter what your philosophical bent during the Enlightenment, you all agree on this, you hate original sin. You reject the idea of original sin. The church hasn't necessarily embraced that, but in many ways has been deeply affected by it. And so, in some ways, the idea that people are born into this world in need of grace seems to be a foreign concept. What I want to do today is very briefly mention the five components of original sin. If we believe in original sin, these five things must be present. And look at the narrative that it presents. And then turn around and look at the narrative in the surrounding culture, or what we've seen over the last uh, several centuries, and see how it is contrary to what the Bible says about original sin. My intent in the sermon is not to tear down enlightenment thinking as such, but to show how it has affected us. To show how it has affected us as God's people, and as such we have drifted away from what we see here in Romans chapter 5. So the five components of the doctrine of original sin. First of all, everyone is afflicted by original sin. This is critical. Every human being, with the exception of the Lord Jesus, virgin born, everyone is born with original sin. Secondly, we all come into the world this way. It is hardwired in us. Thirdly, this tendency or these propensities we must call sinful. That is, there is a moral component. We don't simply say we're defective, you know, that we, are defect- we were born as defective beings. No, there is a moral component. Number four, we were not originally made this way. We saw last Sunday that one of the three key components of biblical grammar is the goodness of creation. That when God created the world, it was good. It reflected his goodness. A good creator created a good creation. Um, In the various confessions of the church, which deal with original sin, they bring up the idea of original righteousness. So we weren't born as, or God did not make Adam and Eve as sinners. They were born, or they were made uh, having righteousness. They were made without sin. As I mentioned last week, this is important because what it tells us is that goodness comes before evil. And when we talk about redemption, there's something that we can go back to, that there is original goodness, rather than starting here with a messed up defective situation and then somehow try to tweak it into making it something manageable. Again, I mentioned this, that We are made in God's image. And there is something wonderful, something glorious about being a human being. But we are also sinners. And then the last component is that the only way out of original sin is supernatural intervention. In a word, is grace. So that is what we see in the biblical view of original sin. 
By contrast, what is the narrative? What is the story that we hear in the West for the past few centuries, which has resulted in the fact that we now live in a post-Christian world? First of all, there is not a belief that we all share the same affliction. Original, the, the biblical doctrine of original sin is that we are all born into this world as sinners. There's an, an egalitarian aspect. We're equal. We are all sinners. That's not what we hear in the world today. Rather, there is a sense among many, not all, that we are the result, we are the products of determinism, the results of existing causes or conditions. Um, for some, interestingly enough, this rules out free will because they say, you know, this is the way you were born, you, you couldn't do otherwise. They see it as cause and effect. And I think that the church in many ways has embraced this without even recognizing it. And it goes beyond human behavior, which I think tends to be the focus. Um, it's the whole issue of nature versus nurture. So among the various schools of thought on determinism, there's biological determinism. The idea that each of human behaviors, beliefs, and desires are fixed by human genetic nature. There's cultural or social determinism, that the culture in which we are raised determines who we will be. Behaviorism, that all behavior can be traced to specific causes. There's environmental determinism, that is, it proposes that the physical environment into which we were born, in fact, shapes who we are. It determines our culture. There's psychological determinism, linguistic determinism. I find this interesting, that the language that you grew up speaking um, of necessity has limitations and so it points you in certain directions whereas if you spoke another language you might go in a different direction. And then the most recent is technological determinism. It presumes that a society's technology drives the development of its structure and values. I think if one took away the word determinism or at least the implication that things are determined I think we would admit that there's something to each of these. If you go to the doctor you have to fill out a form before he or she will see you and they ask you questions and among the questions are the health of family members. Has there been cancer in your family? Has there been high blood pressure in your family? And the, and the idea is, and I think we would acknowledge it, that there are things that we have inherited. There are trends that run in families. I think we would agree that we are shaped not necessarily determined by our family, our surroundings, our culture, our experiences, the language or languages that we speak, the tools or technologies that we use. I, I have no problem with that, but I think we need to be careful. We need to be aware um, that we don't sort of embrace this uncritically and therefore sort of go down a different path than what we see in Scripture, embrace a different narrative. I find it amazing and amusing that there are people who are outraged at what is seen as the biblical view of predestination, but they willingly embrace determinism. One of the issues that I fear with determinism is that there is a sense in which one is not seen as being responsible for one's actions, that it's in fact determined by factors outside of yourself. Uh, perhaps your genetic code or your environment, uh, various things that it's really not your fault that you do the things that you do. Which leads to the second part of the narrative of the Enlightenment, and that is morality is oftentimes set aside. 
In terms of genetics, if one is found to have two genes associated with violence, he or she is said to be 13 times more likely to commit a violent crime. The question then is, should that person be held liable? Should that person be blamed for what he or she has done? This is sort of an extreme example. You could take lesser crimes and ask ourselves a question. Should a person be held responsible if, in fact, he or she is, is acting based on a genetic sequence? Should we even speak of morality at all? Uh, perhaps this is just socially constructed. It's social contract, as John Locke would tell us. A third aspect of the Enlightenment narrative is that the idea of equality is set aside. And this has been done, I think, rather sneakily, and I think it's gone past a lot of people. The Christian view, based on the doctrine of original sin, is that we are all sinners, we all have the same affliction. And in that sense, we are all equal. And if you look at the political movements toward the end of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, you find an emphasis on equality. In the American Revolution, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. This is in the Declaration of Independence. In the French Revolution, the, the cry for liberty, equality, or fraternity, or brotherhood, um, that they called each other citizen, that there was this egalitarian view of, of the population. Now, you may, in fact, say that they were somewhat hypocritical. The Declaration of Independence obviously didn't think that African slaves were created equal. Um, and, you know, the French Revolution with all its problems. But I think the reality is they had this view that people are the same. People are equal. Now, the big difference, by the way, between the American Revolution and the French Revolution is that those in the American Revolution believed in original sin. And so the system they set up was one with checks and balances because they knew you give people too much power and they're just going to go off the deep end. The French Revolution rejected the notion of original sin and the result was bloodshed and chaos. In the 19th century, equality is set aside and done scientifically so that no one recognized it. Darwin's theory of evolution by its very nature, says that we are not equal. Henry Spencer, best known for coining the phrase survival of the fittest, not Darwin, but Spencer, um, five, five years after The Origin of Species came out, he wrote Principles of Biology, and he believed in natural selection, that in fact there are those who are superior to others, those who are more evolved than others. In other words, we're not all equal. We're not all the same. And very quietly and just I think just went past people the idea that we are all the same that we are all, all sinners before God is just pushed aside for Spencer we are not all afflicted with the same affliction some are more afflicted than others in the 20th century the whole idea of equality sort of came back but in the 20th century we're just pure materialists so it has nothing to do with the dignity of human beings. Made in the image of God, creature, that's all been set aside. And again, the issue of morality is called into question. Because if the survival of the fittest is the rule, then I may have to do wrong things, well, 
traditionally called wrong, I may have to do things to get to the top of the pile. But that's okay because that's survival of the fittest. We hear this certainly in Nietzsche and his whole theory of the Superman, uh, the Uberman. Remember when I was in high school, we had to read a book by uh, Herman Hesse, The Steppenwolf, in which one of the characters there explains that the mark of Cain was not that mark that, that Cain did something wrong, but that he was actually better than everyone else. And that's why he was driven out. And he was better, he even killed his brother. He was not bound by social convention. The fourth part of the narrative that we hear in the world today is that the search is on for solutions to the various afflictions. And here you will hear me, I'm being quite defensive because in part, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is folly to imagine that there are no benefits uh, from various solutions. Uh, Having a better diet, eating a particular way, uh, an exercise regimen, medicines, medical procedures. I think we all have benefited or we know people have benefited from these. And yet, if I go a step further and I talk about psychotherapy or psychoanalysis, then then we might get really nervous and sort of balk and say, well, let's do counseling instead. Um, Well, as with anything, there has to be caution. But I think we need to recognize the reality is that none of these whether it be a diet or exercise, medicine, medical procedures, uh, psychotherapy or anything, can cure the human condition of original sin. They may, in fact, help us deal with the symptoms. Uh, physically, and physical health, uh, emotional health, mental health, or relief. Um, and we should thank God for that. But the condition of being a sinner cannot be cured by these. This leads me to the two last reasons for preaching on original sin. First is to counter a cheapening of grace. And by this I mean a faulty view of salvation. Somehow, when we, when we present the gospel, we talk about the Lord Jesus forgiving our sins. And we think of specific acts or thoughts that we have done. But what we see in original sin is that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. In other words, the condition precedes the action. And what we find in the modern world is there are things that can help us deal with the actions, the symptoms, but the condition itself is something that can only be dealt with by divine grace. I think that grace has been cheapened because many Christians, as they think of the gospel, they think of specific actions. And indeed, in the prayer of confession, we confess that we have sinned, we have committed sins. But we need to be cured of the condition of being sinners. I mentioned this last week that those of us raising Christian homes, I think, have really struggled with this because our view has been that of the Enlightenment. And so Jesus died to forgive my sins. It's like, no, actually he died to change you from being contaminated by original sin, the condition of sin. He has come to redeem you from that. The work of Jesus Christ forgives our condition of being a sinner. On some level, I I think I would encourage people to forget the sins or the life of sin as such and rather focus on the fact that what Jesus has done has 
redeemed us from original sin. So I mentioned last week, it is as though if you had a person who had never sinned, they would still need redemption because they have the condition. They may have zero symptoms, they may have never sinned, but they still have the condition of being a sinner. And Paul talks about this in Philippians, that he says, you know, he's, you know, with regard to legalistic righteousness, he was faultless, he was blameless, he was perfect. But in fact, he needed the grace of God. The condition had to be cured. We need, when we think of sin, to consider the presence of sin, the nature of sin, and the danger of sin that is with us every day. At the same time, rejoice in the fact that we have been redeemed from sin. And yet we sin. And the Lord willing, we will look at this in the weeks to come. When we pray the prayer of confession, which we have done earlier, we do so because the condition has been cured. The symptoms are still there. And the prayer of confession deals with the symptoms, but the reality is that the Lord Jesus has saved us. The fourth reason to speak on um, original sin is to lift up the work of Christ. To lift up the Lord Jesus. It is my hope that in this series we will have a deeper appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. See, if we only think in terms of being broken, you get some spiritual super glue and put things together, or of specific sins, we sort of you know, make a tally of the sins we've committed and that Jesus forgive those. Uh, we have a very narrow view, and I think a, a faulty view. We have a condition. We were born into this world as sinners, and it is the Lord Jesus and He alone who can take this from us. As Paul writes earlier in Romans 5, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel should be presented for what it is it is good news. And what is the good news? Well, first of all, we are all sinners. We are all alike. The gospel, if nothing else, is the great equalizer. I think that's one, one reason people don't like the gospel. We're all sinners before God. We are all equal in that regard. What one person has called the universal democracy of sinners. And the second thing we hear in the gospel is that there is redemption. There is salvation for all through the Lord Jesus. But we need to recognize the foundation, the foundation of original sin when it comes to the matter of salvation. Otherwise, I think oftentimes people look to the work of Christ, and that's not wrong in and of itself, but they, again, they have a very shallow view of their own sinfulness, that they, in fact, have sinned against God. As I was preparing the sermon, I was just really struggling with the fact that I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater to say those things, you know, the enlightenment, all these things they've come up with, these are all bad, we need to get rid of them. And then I came across a quote from Simone Weil. Um, and she said, humanism, which for a lot of Christians, that's the boogeyman, humanism was not wrong in thinking that truth, beauty, liberty, and equality are of infinite value. In other words, the enlightenment is exactly right here. It was tragically wrong in thinking that man can get them for himself. 
without grace. And that is the point. That's the point when we look at original sin. We're not saying that people have no value whatsoever. We're not saying that they are without value. That's not what original sin is about. What it is about is that we cannot have these things that God intends apart from grace. Apart from grace. And I think the modern view in the church of grace today is about an inch deep and maybe a mile long, but it's very, very shallow because we have failed to recognize our condition, our true condition when we are born into this world. And so even when we present the gospel, it, it's almost, it's not flippant, that's not the right word, but it's just sort of, it, it's just out there instead of, let's get down to the heat of the heart of the matter, the meat of the issue, and that is we are sinners. We are alienated from God. We are born into the world. as Every human being is that way. We're all the same in that regard. And the only thing that can change that is grace. Only God's grace. And then, I think, if we begin to plumb the depths there, we will be able to appreciate what John Newton wrote and we sang today, Amazing Grace. That God has, in an amazing way, through his Son, redeemed us from the condition of original sin. And we are now his sons and daughters. Let's pray together. Our Father, there are things that we are very familiar with, words that we know by heart. They sort of trip off our tongues. And, but we, we fail to recognize what's being said, what is involved. We find ourselves wanting to reject the narrative of the Enlightenment and those who come before us because it's ended up here in a post-Christian world. we fail to recognize that the key element missing is original sin and because of that a sense of a need of grace the Lord Jesus came to redeem us and not merely from the bad things we have done the bad words we have said the lies we have told our evil thoughts, but from being sinners contaminated through and through by original sin. May each of us, as we think about this, have a deeper appreciation for what it means to be a child of God. And as we share the good news with others, May we recognize that it is in contrast to the bad news of our fallen state, but the glorious news that Jesus has died to redeem us. Give us understanding, I pray, by your Spirit. Pray for those that aren't with us today, uh, for Mike, uh, who's sick and ransom, uh, for others, that you would touch them and heal them. We thank you for your love and your faithfulness, and we think of birthdays, coming up for Gwen and Jason. How loving you are.
Lord, we thank you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.